So, Rachel, reading the Longshot Mini got me thinking. How much do you know about Spiral's timeline? Honestly, her name covers it pretty well. She's literally a continuity spiral. Kind of a self-contained version of the Longshot Shatterstar paradox, actually. The thing where Shatterstar is Longshot's son and Longshot is Shatterstar's clone? Right, but kind of inverted. As Spiral, she sets up and kidnaps her own past self, Ricochet Rita, whom she helps set on the path to becoming Spiral, because by then Spiral has been so warped by Mojo that she hates the self she was almost as much as she hates him. Huh. So the extra arms, what's up with that? Oh, I mean, I can see where they'd come in handy. God damn it, you actually said that. I regret nothing. But they also tie into Spiral's main tragic theme, the perpetuation of those cycles, because she's going to end up running this thing called the Body Shop, which is all about... Auto repair? Cybernetic and cosmetic modification. Huh. Yeah, see, everyone's forgotten because of the Striker stuff in the second movie, but she was actually the one who originally souped up Lady Deathstrike in the Reavers before Pierre Scott retconned in. Didn't Rachel Summers end up there too at some point? And Psylocke. Spiral gave her those cybernetic eyes that beamed images back to the Mojoverse. Which raises another question. Does Spiral work for Mojo or what? She seems to do a lot on her own, but she's technically in his thrall, isn't she? Well, the short answer to that is kinda. But when it comes to Psylocke, Spiral has a hate on that essentially transcends other loyalties. And the eyes are really just the tip of the iceberg. Spiral was actually also behind the body swap with Quanin. Wait, I thought that happened because of the Siege Perilous. What? No, no, no. That was just the lie Quanin's ex fed her while she was still disoriented and she constructed fake memories to match. That's... Actually, that's a way more straightforward explanation than I was expecting. Then what? I remember their minds were sort of mix and match for a while, like each body had a different personality, but both of them were kind of fusions of Quanon and Betsy. Yeah, that actually didn't end up fully straightened out until after Quanon died. So at this point, Quanon's dead in Betsy's original body, and Betsy's alive in Quanon's? Well, except for a brief incident in which Spiral exhumed Quanon and swapped them back again. How'd that work? Well, she was working with Madeline Pryor. Who's also dead. You think that's gonna stop her? Madeline and Spiral switched Betsy's mind back into her original body, but it was controlled by Madeline, who forced Psylocke to join and fight for the Sisterhood of Mutants until Dazzler burned half Psylocke's face off with a laser, shocking her back to both Control and Quanin's original body. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 49th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. This time, we are going to talk about my favorite character and a miniseries I read over and over when I was younger, both of which are called Longshot. Man, so I feel like we're kind of doing a deep dive last week and this week into your origins, because, I mean, Longshot is totally your guy. You know, obviously everyone knows that Cyclops is the character that you sort of identify the most with and is your favorite, and I've been hesitant to really put something forth, although I have recently for that, just because I don't think I identify as much with a character as you do with Cyclops, but reading through this series again... Yeah, I'm totally a long shot, dude. I am really happy that we finally get some turnabout on this because we've talked about, you know, me and the whole Cyclops identification thing kind of ad nauseum. It's nice that you get to be the one kind of pinioned. Well, I suppose there is an inherent advantage. I mean, Cyclops shows up about 400,000 times as much as Longshot does. He's really not been in X-Men for very long. It's just been here and there on the periphery. Longshot does have way fancier hair, though. Way fancier hair than almost anyone. And Longshot ends up a central character more. In this case, for example, we're looking at his introduction, which is literally in a self-titled limited series. And so that limited series is what we're going to focus on this episode. It came out at the end of 1985. It was a six-issue miniseries uh, written by Anne. Nascenti and drawn by Art Adams. It's kind of the anti-secret wars. It's based in a really similar premise, which is that a character who's kind of a tabula rasa interacts with the Marvel Universe. I actually, as we were going through, I was thinking, okay, so this is basically Nascenti doing her critique of Western culture through this tabula rasa focal character, but I like it a lot more than Secret Wars 2. I can think of a couple of reasons for that. The first of which is that politically, I think we're much, much closer to Anne Nascenti than Jim Shooter. Uh, yes, most definitely. So... But I think also that the premise works much, much better with a character who's not omnipotent. Right, because for starters, that gives the story an actual plot of its own. It's not just main character makes stuff happen, it's main character is in this weird situation and makes stuff happen in relation to that situation. Well, and it gives it stakes for the main character. The Beyonder's not very sympathetic. It feels mostly like an angry child playing with the universe, and you're worried for the universe, but you're not really worried for the kid. Whereas with Longshot, he's an immensely likable character. I mean, he's deliberately written to be very likable, like women are very attracted to him, people identify with him. Yeah, his likability is is literally part of his power set. But yeah, before we dive into the series, let's talk about a bit of Longshot as a character. So, 
You found this quote from Nascenti. Is this from the introduction to the collected version? Or uh, this is actually from Wikipedia, as are so much of our research. Thank you, Dr. Internet. Yes. And Nascenti wrote, Longshot is the idea of stripping someone of everything they are. I never read comics, so the idea of a hero to me was different. I couldn't think of it in terms of a superhero hero. I thought of it more as a conceptual hero. Not having a comic book background, I tend to come up with the metaphysics before I come up with the characters. I knew that I wanted to deal with the metaphysics of luck. It was a concept that interested me, what luck is, what probability is, how you could shift probabilities towards yourself, and what are the repercussions of that, so I did a character centered around that idea. Now, Nesenti is not brand new to superhero comics. This is, however, her first major work, so I can see her sort of having this, this mission statement for it. And what's interesting about this as a mission statement, this series actually doesn't deal that heavily with the metaphysics of luck. It talks about it, you know, in mechanical terms, how Longshot's luck works, the way intention plays into that. But in terms of the larger sort of conceptual universal scale of that, that's actually something that no one went into in a lot of depth until the much, much more recent Chris Hastings Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe miniseries. Uh, yeah, that's really all about sort of the, the, the cosmic consequences and how the very fabric of time and space and fate themselves are altered by this power. And I want to say going in, we recommend the hell out of both of these series, especially as a pair. They are very different, and obviously Nascenti and Hastings are very, very, very different writers. And part of what I love about Longshot and about the two series sort of juxtaposed is that they're very different takes and very different voices, both of which suit the character kind of perfectly. And Longshot's a character that not everyone gets right. I mean, he spent a lot of time on various teams being written as a generic, innocent, foolish character, and that's really not who he is. There's a lot more going on. Nesenti gets that. Hastings gets that. I mean, I sort of think of him as suffering from what I've come to think of as Rachel Summers syndrome. Ha, <laughs> yeah. And that you have a character whose original concept is very, very specific and strong, and who's written very strongly in the books that come directly out of that, and then no one else really gets for a really long time. But yeah, so going back to the creation of the character, now, Nesenti did the writing. Um, like we said, Art Adams did the design, and this is the same Art Adams that did the work we talked about last time, the Asgardian Wars. But this is earlier Art Adams, and I think in a lot of ways this is better Art Adams. Art Adams was an iconic superhero artist. He's still working, he's still doing really good stuff, and he's still a really good artist. But there's a flexibility and an expressiveness in his early art that I think gets lost as he develops a more distinct personal style. And that especially comes through in Faces, because I'd read more late Adam stuff, and I thought, you know, he's an artist I sort of like, but I just, I find his faces kind of stiff. And then I went back and read Longshot, and it's so expressive. Oh yeah, I mean, there are faces where Longshot's all about the rage, and ones where he's like all about the joy, and his, his face is almost cartoony, but not in a way that takes away from the suspension of disbelief or realism. So Adams did the visual design for Longshot. A couple other artists worked on it as well, but he, his was the main work. So Nesenti said she didn't want him to look like other characters, so, uh, you know, he has this sort of leather jacket thing and a big bandolier. He's a little glam rocker looking, actually. He is, yeah. But as far as the bandolier and the pouches on it... The, the bandolier was to hold his throwing knives. Right. But Art Adams was annoyed with all these characters who could produce weapons or items or whatever out of nowhere, so he's like, well, they gotta keep him somewhere, let's give this dude some pouches. And he was the one that started that. So that part of the 90s is pretty squarely his fault. Yeah, this is literally where the pouches start. Longshot is patient zero. Now, the other thing with Longshot that's immediately noticeable is that amazing mullet. Again, in the 90s, there were just mullets everywhere. Longshot was really the first Marvel mullet. And the reason for that was that, again, they, uh, Nesenti and Adams wanted to make the character look unique. And Adams was like, all right, well, nobody's got a mullet. Uh, what mullet shall I pattern this mullet off of? How about a musician <laughs> named Lamal? Now, I had not heard of Lamal, so I looked him up. This was the dude that did the theme song to The NeverEnding Story. And that just somehow is, is completely perfect. Yes! Oh my god, that's so right! So here we have this be-pouched, be-mulleted gentleman. Oh, the other thing that Longshot pioneered was the eye flare. Yes, so with Longshot, the fact that he's got this sort of star of light that flares over his eyes sometimes, that's directly related to his power. I guess you could say it kind of is with Cable and Strife as well, but big glowy flary eyes on only one side of your face, definitely a thing that started right here. I don't know how many of our listeners read or read the comic strip Let's Be Friends Again, but there is, I cannot talk about this without my mind going straight to the strip Longshot and Cable in a blackout, which is my my favorite Let's Be Friends Again strip ever, which I'm going to link to in the As Mentioned because it's wonderful and you should all read it if you haven't. But anyway, so this was a six-issue miniseries. Now, originally it was supposed to lead into an ongoing series, again by Anne Nascenti. Unfortunately, that never happened. The premise was that it was going to be a long shot going to sort of a different dimension every single issue, 
And the overarching plot, everything was going to be orchestrated by Mephisto, this sort of Marvel Satan stand-in. Now, Longshot did eventually end up on Exiles, which I think is actually the closest he's ever come to hitting that particular plot and concept. Before the, his Exiles run, though, he was on the X-Men for a while, and we're going to be getting to that coverage relatively soon. He shows up uh, pretty close to where we are right now. Most recently, he was on the second-to-last iteration of X-Factor. Yeah, the private detective one uh, by Peter David. And I was deeply, deeply underwhelmed by Longshot in that. I feel like they could have done more with him, it's true. The first issue opens with Longshot sort of running away. We don't know the context, and it turns out um, he doesn't really know much either. He's running from these sort of demons, ends up going through this portal. So again, we've talked about Claremontian narration and Nascentian narration. This is very much Nascentian narration. Yawning time bends over space, which warps around time, performing an impossibly contrary dance, swallowing the runner, a few others, and the rest are caught neither here nor there. And they pause for an eternal instant, held in that place where all has been, and all is yet to become, and where the future is already the past. Basically, Nesenti is Claremont, possibly on some sort of hallucinogens. For sure. So, we only have this little bit of immediate stress action for a couple of pages, because as Longshot exits the portal, he finds himself in modern-day upstate New York. This is the first time we really see an example of how Longshot's powers work, which is that his superpowers aren't just luck, they're kind of Rube Goldberg luck. Yeah, so when he appears, he all of a sudden sees an old woman about to be hit by a car, pushes her out of the way, the car swerves, hits a wall, which is the wall of a church, and a gargoyle breaks open, showering the passers-by with a bunch of coins that were hidden in there for some reason. So everyone's very impressed, they're like, oh, you saved that lady and you made all this money happen, you came out of nowhere, you have this incredible mullet, I'm assuming they were saying to themselves. Oh yeah, totally. So you're rad, uh, what's your deal, dude? And he says, I don't know, I'm really confused. He's, he's basically lost all of his memory of who he is, of his past, and while this is neurologically dubious, it's exactly what's going on here. This being an Ascenti comic, everyone immediately goes from adulation to distrust and annoyance. Except for one dude, a survivalist named Elliot, who recognizes Longshot as one of his own, and I'm really curious as to how, because like literally the only things he's seen about Longshot are that he's polite, he's got insane glam hair, and he's wearing a lot of really tight leather. So like, are Marvel survivalists just way glam? You know what I think it is, is he sees all the pouches, and he's like, those things have got to be full of like tiny cans of food and guns. So Elliot tells Longshot to come find him later, and Longshot heads off and quickly meets a sort of dog-monster-beast thing. It seems friendly. The dog thing, though, does run off when Longshot meets up with Elliot. It's going to keep coming back, and for a long time, every time Longshot finds another person, it'll disappear. One could certainly be forgiven for thinking it's all in his imagination. But, you know, he doesn't think too much of this because, hey, he's brand new, he doesn't know what's weird and what's not. So he and Elliot talk a little bit about the world. Elliot talks about his various conspiracy theories of all the big companies controlling everything and leading the world toward Armageddon and all that good stuff. And meanwhile, Longshot is uh, skimming through the newspaper and sees an article about a kidnapped baby and decides that this is a problem and he's going to go get it back, which is sort of how Longshot operates. He sees something that's wrong, and he decides that he needs to fix it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the more appealing things about the character, although it obviously can be extremely short-sighted. So Elliot's like, but nobody pays attention to petty crime, which I think is absolutely an ascent you're reacting to bystander syndrome. And Longshot's argument is basically, but baby! Right, and you know, that's hard to argue with, so Elliot says, well, screw it, let's do this. They get a bunch of equipment and a lot of weapons, which of course Elliot has, and uh, head to find the woman whose baby was kidnapped. And what they find out is not only did whoever took her baby take the baby and kill the dog, they also did the creepiest thing ever, which was replace the baby with a baby doll covered with what are supposed to be arcane symbols, but actually look like they're just splotches of something. But this woman's obviously very broken up and terrified. Longshot calms her down a little bit and says, hey, we're going to fix this. Let me find out what's going on. Puts his hand on the baby doll and closes his eyes. Because Longshot has psychometry. So psychometry is the ability to interact telepathically with objects. And it works in different ways in different stories in different contexts. And for Longshot, what it means is that he can tell about the history of the object, whoever handled it, and he can also, we'll find out later, kind of read the future of the object. Basically, any emotional imprints, past or future, on an object, he can pull out of that. And this leads indirectly, and much, much later, to one of my favorite holiday specials ever, where he finds a trove of stolen loot and decides that he is going to return it all because it is sad and homesick. That's a Christmas story, as I recall, right? Yes, because Longshot is really nice. Yes, he's Mullady Santa Claus. So, at this point, they have a destination to go to, so Hester, Longshot, and Elliot all head out to this old abandoned windmill and see this crazy ritual going on. There are, like, all these demons on the roof and uh, light going everywhere, like fireworks and lasers, and there's a woman with six arms dancing up there. 
and they see the baby right in front of that woman, it looks like she is going to sacrifice it very shortly. And it turns out they know Longshot. They recognize him and they blame him for pulling him out of their world and into this one. Right, which I suppose that's fair. They were chasing him, a portal randomly opened, and he went through and they just sort of kept going. It's implied that this baby sacrifice ritual is what's going to get them back to where they came from. And that's when he slips up. Yeah, he's been very agile and, well, lucky, for lack of a better word, in everything he's done so far. Yeah, he's been uncannily lucky. Everything he's done has not only happened the way he wants it to turn out, but better and perfectly, and often again in these sort of Rube Goldbergian strings of luck, this is the first time we really see him founder. And he's not really sure what happens. He goes back to Hester and Elliot, and Elliot says something that's going to be very important. Gotta keep your motives pure. You can't trust luck to pull punches for you. And Longshot replies, Soon as I forgot the baby, I felt something slip away. I wasn't on anymore. I lost my way. And that's the first hint we get of the mechanic behind Longshot's luck, which is that it is entirely intention-fed. For Longshot's luck to work, his intentions have to be entirely altruistic. He can't be acting in his own gain. Now, this can get a little complex because obviously your intentions aren't always going to factor in all the context of what's going on. Your intentions could be good, but you could in reality be doing something that's a bad plan. And that does bite Longshot on the ass now and again. I've said before that Longshot's ultimate weakness is moral complexity. So Longshot makes another attempt, this time keeping his motives pure, remembering he's trying to rescue a baby because that's a good thing that a person can do. Now, at one point, the tightrope he's walking across, because his plots tend to be kind of over the top like that, gets uh, pulled loose, and that dog creature he saw earlier grabs it and ties it back without Longshot realizing it. And we realize from context around here that this dog thing is actually one of the hunters who was after Longshot, specifically the son of their leader. He says quietly to himself, you know, he's sorry to his dad for not killing Longshot, but he's got his reasons. And we never fully find out what those reasons are. Now, this character remains mysterious. Now, we also do learn his name, which here is listed as Magog, but we'll later uh, realize his full name is Gogna Magog, which is confusing because his father is just named Gog. So yeah, that's kind of weird. That's not treated consistently in this series. Because his father ceases to be relevant really soon, we're probably going to just refer to him as Gog or Pup, which is what Longshot calls him. Yeah. But uh, Longshot is able to win. He manages to uh, distract slash disrupt all of the demons for long enough to get the baby back and rescues it. And as he leaves, says, Hester, don't forget about those miracles. And Elliot, I hope the world doesn't blow up, even if that means you'll never get to test out your fallout shelter. But the next time I pass through, I'll stop in and try that freeze-dried ice cream. And at that point, I think, is actually when he gets his name for the first time, or what's going to be his name, because he doesn't know his name and no one else does either, or no one else remembers it. And actually... It's never quite clear whether he even has a name before once we learn his origins, but now Elliot decides he's going to call him Longshot. And that's pretty much it for the introductory story. Now, this miniseries is kind of strange in that the first few issues are very episodic. However, the last few really run together. So right now we're still in episodic land. Now, the second one, I don't know if it's my favorite exactly, but it does introduce who the person who I think is both your and my favorite character of the series. Oh, well, you know, not counting Longshot, but yeah, unquestionably. And that is Ricochet Rita. So we start out with Longshot and Pup. They're trying to jump onto a train, which we, the reader, are like, wait a minute, that train is covered in guns and spikes and, and stuff. That's, that's weird. Longshot, of course, has no frame of reference for what trains normally look like in this world he's never encountered before, so he's like, hell yeah, it's a train, let's jump on it. Now, it turns out this train is part of a movie set. There's a movie being filmed right now, and uh, obviously Longshot and Pup are disrupting the whole thing, so the director's like, hey, Ricochet Rita, referring to one of the stunt women, get this guy off of my set. I should mention, too, that Pup has at this point grown spikes on his back and tail, which he just refuses to acknowledge. Uh, yes, yeah, he's sort of steadily mutating over the course of his appearances. So let's talk about Ricochet Rita. She's based directly on Anne Nascenti. She looks like Anne Nascenti. Yeah, that was a deliberate decision on Art Adams's part. While, as far as I know, Anne Nascenti doesn't have a secret previous career as a stunt woman, I wouldn't actually be surprised, because she is, in fact, that diehard and badass. So, yeah, Rita gets on a motorcycle and goes after Longshot, pulls up next to him, and says... Catch me if you can, hotshot. What for? Eh, for a lollipop, for a song, for your mother, for any old thing, for kicks. And this is how Rita talks pretty much all the time. She's kind of ridiculous, but in a way that I really appreciate. Well, you connected her specifically to one of my favorite characters, actually, from the Batman animated series, Roxy Rocket. Yeah, it's a very similar uh, thrill-seeking, devil-may-care kind of attitude. 
so the director, he's, he's very impressed at this whole thing because clearly Longshot is incredible at stunts as well. And he starts selling his movie to Longshot. It's about a bunch of displaced people who form a band of futuristic pirates. They rob from the rich to give to themselves. It's my statement on unemployment. Brilliant, huh? Oh, man. So this was the first place where we made the Jim Shooter Secret Wars 2 comparison. We were just like, but in this case, we agree. Yeah, I mean, Nascenti is really doing social commentary at every turn. When Nascenti does specifically entertainment satire, I feel like there's this progression that kind of makes me love it because it starts out really heavy handed. And then it just goes so far over the top that it becomes this surrealist, brilliant weirdness. It definitely gets weirder than this in some of Nascenti's later work. Um, I believe she was the one who wrote the New Mutant Summer Special, which is one of the strangest Marvel comics I've ever read, and it's all about this sort of thing. Yeah, and this series is going to be where we first see Mojo, who is very different here, but is eventually basically going to become the driving entertainment industry satire of the Marvel Universe. Exactly. But for now, uh, the director, Hitch, basically tells the previous male lead stunt double to get lost and hires Longshot, who doesn't really have any idea what's going on, but says, sure, why not? Rita trains him in, in using the stunt gear, and in, they're using jetpacks. They have jetpacks. Like, the this Marvel movie Universe. just randomly has jetpacks. That's so awesome. <laughs> well, the director does mention that he believes in doing the most realistic stunts possible, like having everything be real to give the movie more of an edge. So I'll kind of buy it. I mean, we've seen them in the Marvel Universe before, certainly. It's just one of those, you know, how did this dude get a whole of this technology because if jetpacks are that easily accessible that really changes the cultural landscape and it especially changes the landscape of crime fighting like why do marvel cops not have jetpacks why do freaking businessmen not have jetpacks i in any circumstance at all i would want one if they were available roller skates and a jetpack for everyone perfect yeah, so they're they're training with these jetpacks and Rita's, you know, skyrocketing around just sort of showing off and longshot is having flashbacks which is something that really happens. He'll get sort of flashes of his uh, of his past that's been lost when he encounters something that is similar to an element of it. So he remembers in this case being in some kind of a battle where he and this other dude named Jackson, who looks very much like Michael Jackson because Art Adams does these references whenever he can, they're flying around dodging lasers and stuff in the part of some kind of rebellious battle. Jackson gets shot down and killed. This is also the point where we discover that in his previous life, Longshot was or believes that he was some kind of movie star a career that he associates directly with slavery. Yeah, like, you know, he was being filmed, his various struggles, for the entertainment of some other group of people. And he doesn't know who they are at this point, but that's going to come back big time. So Rita and Longshot are are getting along marvelously, and they hook up. Longshot's mentioned, you know, my hearts are about to burst. Longshot Longshot has two hearts. Um, We've also seen that he has one fewer finger on each hand than we think of as normal. Rita touches him and is like, oh my god, your skin's like leather, what the hell? And as all this is going on, all of a sudden, demons! And then Pup, this dog-demon creature, shows up and kills them all. And Longshot asks Pup what he knows about Longshot's past. Yeah, Longshot's just being very, very pleading and friendly with Pup. Like, if you know something, please tell me. You know, I'd love it if you could help me. Longshot's always very nice to everybody by default. And Pup just says, you know, I hate you. That's all I know. And punches Longshot and runs off. They're both really childlike throughout this. Like, it's very much sort of a growing up journey for both of them. Yeah, he's really just starting to learn how to react to things. And he reacts very emotionally intensely. So... You know, he thinks to himself, well, Rita's trying to get close to me, but Pup was close to me, and he hurt me, so maybe I shouldn't let Rita get close to me. But he totally does anyway. Anyway, they get to the big stunt, the one that Hitch has been uh, talking about this whole time. The million-dollar stunt. They're each going to net a million bucks for being willing to do this crazy-ass stunt. Which involves jetpacks and lasers and explosions, and uh, I, I really wonder what the budget on this movie is, because goddamn. All of the money, because All it's a comic money. book movie. And he forces them to sign these waivers first, and... Longshot begins to question his motives for doing this because, you know, he's been told he has to have money and he figures, you know, this is as good a way as any to get it. But again, he's doing it for gain. And so his luck switches off mid-stunt. And so he gets winged by the lasers and then again and crashes into these sort of uh, power lines, which sends him into a flashback. And that's the first place that we learn about the mechanics of his luck. Figures with star eyes like his and robes chanting about the purification of motives, luck, bending reality, and they're about to brand him and another guy who we only sort of see in shadow. Now, we never find out who these guys are, and we talked about that pretty extensively because Longshot is nominally the catalyst for and the leader of this rebellion, we're going to learn later. And so who are these guys who know that much more than he does and are that much more powerful? Right, right. It's, it's not really stated, and I'm curious about that. Having been interrupted by this flashback, Longshot gets lasered some more, crashes, and seems to be dying. 
this is super graphically bloody. Like, I was really surprised at how not only mangled, but how, like, visibly and almost fluorescently bloody he is, because you don't see that a lot. And so the director is thinking to himself, oh, man, those contracts are totally illegal. If they catch me for this, I'm done for. And so he tells the rest of his crew and cast, all right, I'll take him to the hospital. It's going to be fine. Just trust me. And yeah, so he drives off with long shots, a seemingly almost dead body. And dumps him in a river, just saying, sink, sink, sink. And then he sees Longshot's eyes, his dead eyes, looking up at him. And the way Hitch is drawn here by Adams, it's a really gruesome, sickening thing. Like, you just see Hitch covered in sweat, freaking out, clearly horrified, and that's where the issue ends. So we're chasing themes through the different issues, and usually in context of the supporting characters who Longshot hooks up with. And in three, our main foil for Longshot is a gentleman who goes by the nickname of Jinx, who is a suburban dad and husband who is, is suicidally miserable. Yeah, I mean, we see a little bit of his of his home life. He's trying to uh, watch a sports game on TV while reading the paper, and his wife is being sort of stereotypically naggy, and his kids are running back and forth chasing a dog. And they're behind on the bills, and there's just this constant cacophony in the background and a sense of, you know, never quite being able to catch up with anything. And so he goes to brush his teeth, realizes he's going to have to do that every day for the rest of his life, pulls out a revolver, shoots the television, and leaves. I talked about this being a really, really text and writing-driven comic. There aren't a lot of points where the art really takes front and center, and the, the composition and comics format does, and this is really one of them. We're going to put this page up in the as-mentioned, but it's really artfully constructed. And so he goes off to basically try to kill himself. He jumps off a bridge and fails to die because he falls on a long shot. Oops. He's like, holy crap, this guy is in terrible shape. Well, okay, um, let me interrupt planned suicide and at least get this guy to the water and see if he's okay. In the process of this, they have a conversation about you know this company called Con Ed, which is, I guess, sort of a major utility communications conglomerate, which both Elliot and Jinx claim has been ripping people off and has just received this massive shipment of diamonds. And so Longshot decides that the right thing to do is clearly to go get them back. Yeah, and he manages to drag Jinx along after Jinx, you know, tries to kill himself again while Longshot's ranting about how good it is to be alive. And Longshot says, hey, cut that out and stops him. So they break into the Con Ed headquarters. This is the first time we've really seen someone caught in the wake of Longshot and Longshot's luck. Yeah, normally everybody who sees Longshot is either horrified or terrified by him or super into what's going on. And this guy's just like, what is this crazy person? What is happening? I'm really concerned. They get into Kana, they find the diamonds, demons attack, use the diamonds to open a portal out, except for one, he's a humanoid guy with a ram head who slips off and stays on Earth. So Longshot feels like, you know, this has been a satisfactory mission, they got the diamonds back, they stuck it to the man, and Jinx is horrified, he's like, no, no, you stole those, those belonged to Kaneb. And furthermore, I don't like hanging out with you, you make me feel even more normal and boring than, than I already felt, I mean, you're so special and miraculous, and I'm just a guy, I'm getting out of here. Also, you totally got all my teeth knocked out, so, you know, that was cool, jerk. And so Jinx heads off to go back and see if he can win his wife back after shooting the television, uh, picks up some flowers from the ground, uh, figures, well, with no teeth, at least he won't have to brush him anymore. And Longshot's just sort of left with his bag of diamonds, asking himself, well, what do I do now? What you do now in issue four, titled Can't Give It All Away, is try to figure out what to do with a bunch of diamonds that it turns out you were not actually stealing for the good guys from a major corporation who obviously had security cameras. So at this point, Longshot's photo is all over the news. And so a couple of people notice this, namely Spider-Man and She-Hulk. And Spider-Man's like, well, you know, I can sell some photos of this, and She-Hulk's like... Damn. Yeah, I love that She-Hulk, uh, she mentions that she wouldn't mind chasing his tail, but really, though, she just wants to take out this criminal. They're very Jim Shooter superheroes in this, because when either of them meets him, they immediately just attack him. Like, as far as they know, he's nonviolent, he's just a thief, and they literally just, like, start punching him. And he does manage to get away from both of them. Um, I really enjoy when Spider-Man's going after him, being all wisecracky, and Longshot's like, why, why are you being so mean? Why, why would you make those jokes about me? But the real team of heroes who Longshot meets up with in this issue are the Star Slammers. Now, you may know that name right there, because Star Slammers was actually Walter Simonson's thesis project when he was in college. Which was, I think, much later published by a combination of Malibu and Dark Horse Comics. So it did actually find its way into print. You can still track it down if you, if you know where to look these days. God, I love how like circuitously referential everything yeah, so these are actually some children who are pretending to be these kind of space pirate heroes uh, wearing these homemade costumes. In the awesomest, like, abandoned car ever? Yeah. What they also are, clearly, is the characters from Little Rascals, which is to say, our gang. 
there's some more pretty great social and entertainment satire. You can almost kind of hear Nascenti cracking her knuckles, jumping into it, but that's not really directly relevant to the story or Longshot. So let's cut to what is relevant to the story, which is our first glimpse of Longshot's home dimension. The way we see this home dimension is through the perspective of a character we'll come to, I'm not going to say know and love, but at least know, that being Mojo. Now, Mojo, as written here, you may be familiar with Mojo. He's sort of a gigantic, yellow, humanoid creature in sort of a metallic walker with spider legs and a big scorpion tail as part of the walker. He is one of the spineless ones of the Mojoverse, so named because he is its absolute dictator. What we quickly realize is that he is quite out of touch with reality, quite megalomaniacal, and has no compunction for any of his actions. He kills and murders and tortures without really seeing a problem with it. Yeah, so I want to talk about this for a sec, because Mojo has shown up a lot after this. He's he's a recurring X-Men villain. Most recently, he showed up in the second most recent issue of Spider-Man and the X-Men. And later versions and personifications of Mojo are, I think, significantly toned down, because... I had not read this series for a long time when we jumped into it today, and I had forgotten he is utterly terrifying in here. He is just obsessive and arbitrary and cruel, nigh-omnipotent creature who manipulates and twists everything around him. And so we see him talking to Major Domo, who's, who's this kind of uh, much more human-looking character that's his, well, his Major Domo, basically. And Mojo's ranting and raving and summoning slave girls to him and then uh, yelling at them for showing up, asking why those ugly creatures are in his presence. There's a segment shortly after this where he insists that everyone in his universe wear masks of his own face, and then when a group of people show up wearing them, kills them on sight for mocking him. And we realize, you know, if this is the dimension that Longshot is coming from, that he was rebelling against the leadership of, well, you can sort of see where he's coming from. Oh my god, no one writes Mojo the way Anne Nascenti writes Mojo. He is so weird and scary and fantastic. I always like that he has somebody to bounce off of, like Major Domo, who's very sort of stead and serious, and Spiral, who's very bitter, but also very realistic. They're both very dry. Exactly. Sort of understated. So Mojo finds out what's going on, that the demon hunters did not, in fact, capture Longshot, and in fact, they found a planet full of people who look like him. Mojo's a little concerned because he figures if word gets out to the slaves of his planet, of the Mojoverse, which are all human-ish like Longshot. And who are specifically constructed out of the legends and, and demons and nightmares of the Mojoverse, of the spineless ones. Like, they're basically designed to look monstrous and to be visually distinct from the population who they were created to serve. If word gets out about a whole planet full of them, then the slaves will realize, wait a minute, maybe we can be free. Maybe it's not our destiny to be slaves to the spineless ones. So Mojo decides that clearly the thing to do is to just head to Earth and crush it. And what he does first is to find Ricochet Rita, who he figures out has a connection to Longshot and basically kidnap her from her home along with Spiral. So as Mojo is kidnapping Ricochet Rita, Longshot is back with the kids he met up with before, the Little Rascals spinoffs. And one of them uh, thought he saw a monster. What he actually saw was Gog and Magog, the sort of dog creature. You know, Longshot's been being told, clearly this is your imagination. Monsters aren't real. Monsters aren't real. And he's trying really hard to function in the paradigm of this world. So he's like, no, no, no. This monster can't be real. Take me to where you saw him. I'll prove it to you. Uh, They take him to the Cloisters Museum, which I'm assuming is a real place. And, spoiler, the monster is in fact totally real. And Gog at this point has mutated hugely. He's got, like, spikes and extra arms, and he's gigantic. And he's also far more angry with Longshot than any time we've seen him. He's been getting more monstrous and more furious every time he's appeared. And what we find is that he's been absorbing the ambient magic of Earth the longer he's been there. This ends issue four, and issue five, the penultimate issue begins with this fight, this standoff with Gog, and we find out Gog's origin, which is that he was one of the rebel trackers going after Longshot, and he now hates Longshot for making him lose his world and his form, which is weird because he's the one who chose to stay with Longshot. Gog is kind of a paradox. It's not explained very well, it's true, but yeah, he he confronts Longshot. You call me a puppy? Well, you're the puppy, leaving messes everywhere, walking off wagging your tail, assuming someone will pick up after you? You're oblivious! Yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah, I mean, Longshot, as much as he's always very noble in the immediate, his grasp of long-term consequences is is pretty terrible. Now, Gog also claims something that doesn't become relevant in this series, but is hugely relevant to the later Hastings Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe series, which is that Longshot's luck is coming from a zero-sum supply. When he gets more luck, he is taking it directly from others. He's becoming a lot less confident as this is going on, as this fight is occurring, and he's realizing he doesn't want to, want to actually kill Gog, consequently really starts losing the fight. Right, because again, Longshot's weakness is nuance. It's a situation where, he, you know, the bad guy is someone who he cares about or has cared about, and he doesn't want to kill anyone he doesn't have to, but he wants to protect the kids, but he doesn't want to fight, 
And so he can't get that purity of intention that he needs for his luck to work. Luckily for everyone, someone else is there, and that is the ram demon who we saw earlier. Right, and uh, he shows up, quickly reveals that he, in fact, is another one of the rebels from uh, Longshot's Rebellion. He's got one of those star eyes as well. So he's got the luck powers. Yeah, and so he fights off Gog as Longshot runs away. Longshot has just lost all of his confidence at this point. The children have gone to almost mocking him because he's so unsure of himself, and he gets out of there. Now, there are two things happening simultaneous to this. The first is that Doctor Strange has noticed that there are dimensional incursions going on and he's investigating. The second is that Mojo and Spiral have Ricochet Rita. They strap her to the prow of their interdimensional ship. They basically force her to stare into the interdimensional void. We also kind of get a window into Spiral and Mojo and the way they interact, which is, oh, so fucked up. Right, at one point, Spiral, I mean, Spiral clearly hates Mojo, and at one point she says, well, maybe I'll just run away and live on this planet full of people who look more like me. And Mojo's like, yeah, whatever, they just, like, cage you and throw things at you because you have extra arms. I feel like this is a vast understatement, but Mojo's a little bit emotionally abusive. Yeah, just a little? I mean, literally, what we're watching is the aftermath of a decades-long horrific brainwashing and torture and physical abuse We're seeing the aftermath as we're seeing it start, because as we mentioned in the opening, Spiral is Ricochet Rita. This is never made explicit in this series. She is a Ricochet Rita of decades and decades later thrown back into time and basically forced to kidnap and corrupt her previous self. And the corruption going on here is, again, pretty sickening and terrifying. We see Rita's eyes roll back in her head, her mouth hang open, as like the dimensions themselves are funneled into her perception, and her mind gradually, painfully snaps. Now, Longshot, meanwhile, speaking of windows into origins, is taking a minute to focus and really trying to figure out his own past, and he has a vision, he has a memory of his own point of origin. And he remembers a much younger version of himself, without the mullet, so therefore inferior, going to find a legendary man named Arise, who lives out on the outskirts of the Mojoverse. Arise lives in this fantastic, marvelous sort of junkyard of his amazing whimsical sculptures and inventions, which it reminds me acutely of um, Dr. Evermore's outside Madison, Wisconsin. This is this amazing, brilliant sculpture yard centered around the Forevertron, this futuristic ship. And Arise has that same sort of intensive hopefulness and whimsy and these things that are somewhere in between technology and trinkets. And I know you've got a very different specific association with Arise, though. Uh, yeah, so I read the Longshot miniseries before I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I'd had, you know, I think The Hobbit read to me when I was very small. I remembered Arise as being like Tom Bombadil and I realized after thinking about it that it was because I'd already had Arise in my head. So when I got to the part where Bombadil shows up in the Fellowship of the Ring, I just pictured Arise. So you pictured Tom Bombadil as like nine feet tall with robot legs? Well, not the robot legs necessarily, but yes, very tall, giant beard, that sort of thing. You should have kept the robot legs because that would be awesome. It's true. Tolkien could have benefited. But I really like Arise. He reveals the origin of the Mojoverse, which is that he was a spineless one as well, and he built himself sort of a robot exoskeleton and encouraged other spineless ones around him to do the same. He was kicked out of mainstream society for this and forced to build a race of slaves for the uh, remaining ruling class of spineless ones. And into those, he built what he describes as planned obsolescence, you know, the idea that eventually they would produce ones with free will, with an urge to rebel— And with the powers to at least kickstart that, Longshot, his purpose newly reinforced, heads to Rita's, only to find the place entirely wrecked and Strange cradling a dead Whifferdil, Rita's parrot. Yeah, Doctor Strange has come here tracing these sort of mystical signals of everything. They briefly check in and talk about what's going on. It becomes clear to Strange that Longshot is a good guy, if a very confused guy. They agree that they need to track down the demons that remain here, specifically Mojo and Spiral, but also Gog, who's the one that Longshot is most concerned with right now. So they head to the last place they saw Gog, the Cloisters, and attack him again. During this, Strange just keeps feeding him more and more magic, and Gog is gloating like, you think that's going to stop me? Longshot is really worried because he knows how this is going to end. He wants to be able to save Gog, but he's realizing he has to trust somebody's judgment other than his own on this. And as for how it ends, well, y'all remember the restaurant scene in uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life? Yeah, basically Gog gets bigger and bigger and bigger as he absorbs more of Strange's magic, and Longshot pops him. It's actually pretty disturbing. Yeah, and in addition to Longshot's reason for not killing him, which is Gog was, you know, briefly his friend and he knows there's good in him, he's also killing his last chance to really find out about his own past. And Longshot resigns himself to that being necessary. He heads off to sort of continue his quest, along with Quark, who shows up at this point, saying that they have to stop Mojo. 
and Strange is just sort of bemused by this whole thing. You truly are an alien, my friend. You have your eye on an ideal. You believe in the best a thing can be. Quite unrealistic, but perhaps something quite astonishing could result. Many arcane principles of magic are based on just such a ratio between the real and the ideal. If one focused on the ideal, perhaps he could make the ideal happen. As you know, Bob. But the thing is, that's the appeal of the character. That's why I like Longshot, and I think why I identify with him so much. He's, he's pure optimism. He's just the idea that if you care hard enough about something, if you just want something good to be the case enough, then it will be. If you, if you just believe in the best part of people, then that's what's going to come out. That's what's going to manifest. I also empathize with the fact that, you know, that is a naive way of looking at things, but it's still just so addictive, seductive, just to see the world as that positive, that beautiful, that redeemable a place. And that works well when he's functioning as a wild card on on a team that has more structured leadership. But in terms of being a leader of a rebellion, it essentially means that he's his own kill switch. And we'll see how that doesn't work more in the future. For now, though, he and Court go off to take on Mojo, who we see going through this city with Spiral, basically corrupting and sickening everything they pass by. Yeah, we get a direct contrast to Longshot's first moment in a city where Mojo and Spiral trip an old lady and step on her head. Yeah, and uh, Mojo's talking about how there's this new beautiful world that he wants to make his because he owns everything, of course, and Spiral says, yes, Mojo, you own everything. Yeah, the whole thing with Mojo and the thing that keeps getting reinforced is he owns everything he sees. And so he finds a church and sees a bunch of people worshipping and says, you know, they should be worshipping me, and sends out a brainwashing wave for them to build the church into this tower, this citadel for him. In the process of this, they kind of forget about Ricochet Rita, who at this point is entirely catatonic from being tied as a figurehead to the prow of this interdimensional ship, and they just hang her up in her apartment, stuck in this permanent silent scream. And that is where Longshot and Strange find her. And Longshot is is really horrified and concerned. And I gotta say, Art Adams' art totally sells just how messed up Rita is at this point. Longshot tries to get a read on what's going on. He actually reads Rita herself and sees what she experienced. And at this point, there's just this anger that starts burning within him toward Mojo for what he has done. So Longshot and Quark get ready to go to war. They get backpacks full of weaponry and supplies. and They dress up in adventurer gear with perfectly palette-swapped outfits and cowboy hats, just like they are the protagonists of a side-scrolling beat-em-up. Player one and player two. And Mojo, at this point, it's been very effective, his brainwashing of these churchgoers. This giant science fiction citadel now stands in the place of the church where they were. And Mojo, once again, he uh, yells at everyone that they mu- that he must see his face everywhere to show that it's all his. And then once they start doing that, he just murders, like, dozens of them for daring to mock him in that way. So Longshot and Quark are off to save him, and Longshot's, you know, got this soaring optimism, and Quark is sort of hoping that he's gonna die. Quark is like, well, okay, this could be a great world for you, for you to bring the other slaves back to, but look at me, I look like one of their animals. And Mojo shows up at that point. That's right! Genetically engineered in the image of a beast? I did it! I! It was me! You're mine! The two lowly slaves that ran away on man legs? I'd forgotten you, and here you drop in my lap of laps. I'll clot you burnt, batter, and sleaze, give you a taste of the touch Ricochet loved, bless her heart, burn char her soul! Um, no one writes Mojo like Anne Nascenti writes Mojo. Yeah, he's just so fast-paced with his brain going in 10,000 terrible directions at once. Now, to come after them, Mojo has left his base of power, so he's basically just defenseless. Longshot attacks him, and Mojo at this point flees. They recoup, they call Strange. Rita is starting to come back a little bit, hearing Longshot's voice helps, and Longshot and Quark prepare for an all-out assault on Mojo's headquarters. They set up the system of catapults, Molotov cocktails, hang gliders, basically a two-man army, and I have no idea why they don't call Elliot at this point, because, I mean, he is literally equipped for maybe not precisely this scenario, but uh, similar scenarios. He he didn't have a cowboy hat, so he didn't qualify. I think that's the problem. What kind of a good survivalist doesn't have a cowboy hat? Uh, Elliot, apparently. What the hell, Elliot? Sorry, dude. So as they're attacking, Longshot uh, passes by a horse and is reminded again of Arise, a time he visited Arise, when Arise told him, basically, stop living like a slave and you no longer are one. So Longshot is full of hope and optimism. He knows this is going to work out. And fond memories of his robot horse. So the attack begins. Just Molotov cocktails thrown by catapults, assault rifles, all sorts of stuff. And Mojo is freaking out. Should I destroy everyone? Let's run that way. They'll never find us. Like in the midst of a single speech bubble completely changing his tune. You know, the things you talk about liking about Mojo in this remind me a lot of conversations we've had about the Joker. I think that's absolutely correct. They're scary in very similar ways. And part of what makes them scary is the combination of power and arbitrariness. 
So they do end up eventually winning with the help of a last-minute Deus Ex Machina from Doctor Strange and a restored Ricochet Rita. They manage to knock Mojo into a portal into the space between dimensions, uh, hoping to trap him there forever. But Spiral manages to go in after him, meaning they know he's not going to be defeated, so Longshot figures, well, better go in after him. I can't let this happen again. What we learn earlier, and I don't think we mentioned this, is that Mojo and Spiral with their powers in combination, can basically travel through dimensions and time and space. At will, yeah. And Longshot turns to his friends. I have to go. With Spiral with him, Mojo won't be lost anymore. He'll return to my world and may even try to come back here. I'm ready now to kill him. Then I must gather my people, raise them from the dead, and bring them to this planet where they can be free. Rita and Quark decide that they're going to join him. Quark, because, you know, that's his point of origin. It's his original quest. His concern has been reinvigorated. Rita decides, you know, to hell with it, I'm going to go with you too. Longshot says, you sure you're ready? You'll be risking everything. That's what makes it fun. And they head off hand in hand to go and hopefully save the world. They don't. This will not end happily, because Longshot does not actually get happy endings. He gets optimistic ones that always end in crushing defeat. And for me, this is sort of the ultimate paradox and the ultimate tragedy of Longshot one of maybe the most optimistic characters in the Marvel Universe, and he's also one of the most persistently and fundamentally tragic. Arise talks about having created Longshot to be the leader of this rebellion, but ultimately when you actually look at his powers and what he does and doesn't do, Longshot is more inspirational than effective. He doesn't have the skills of an effective leader. He doesn't have the talents of an effective leader. And in fact, he has skills and talents that are directly undercut by the more global view and strategic thinking that those things would require. I would argue that he's not set up to lead a rebellion. He's set up to be the perfect martyr. And we actually see a bit more of that in the Shattershot crossover years later. We see sort of Arise feeling guilt for handling things the way he did because now the Mojoverse is just thrown into chaos and he's trying to redeem himself, redeem his actions at that point. And Longshot, who is the symbol of free will, never quite gets to exercise it. He never really gets to throw that initial programming. He's just captured and mind wiped again and again and again. Rita, who decides, fuck it, we don't know what's going to happen, jumps back into the Mojoverse, and that's what precipitates her eventually becoming Spiral. Longshot, ultimately, as a character, is about these endless and vicious and just incredibly cruel and crushing cycles of hope and then failure. What I'd really like to see is another Longshot series that finally resolves, that finally does give him a chance to fully win. Shattershot sort of did that very indirectly. He shows up in one panel at the end, but something to kind of put a cap on the story that started in this miniseries would be wonderful. So definitely a bittersweet ending, especially if you uh, if you know where things are going to go from here. But you know, I really stand by this series. I think it's wonderful. It's very strange, as most things Anacenti writes are, but I have, I have a lot of love for this miniseries. I definitely recommend it. This one is on Marvel Unlimited if you want to check it out. I would also highly, highly recommend it. I've mentioned before, and I will, I will say I am biased, the writer as a friend, but Christopher Hastings and Jacopo Kamagni's Long Shot Saves the Marvel Universe is one of my favorite self-contained limited series of the last decade, really. It is incredibly fun. As Hastings put it, Kamagni recognizes the most important thing about Long Shot and drawing Long Shot, which is that of all of the pretty men, Long Shot is the prettiest. Absolutely. He gets a new ridiculous haircut, which a lot of people hated, but I really actually like a lot, so screw all y'all haters. And Hastings is best known for a comic called Dr. McNinja, and if you've read that, you know that he is the absolute master of the brick joke, and of just these incredibly detailed and brilliant setups that you almost forget until you see them just play out like an avalanche. And he does that beautifully here, and it works so well with Longshot. It's a really fun series. And it really gets into the fun half of Longshot, not the epic tragedy part. Meanwhile, you've got questions. All right, so Overnight Religion asks on Tumblr, Has the similarity in Dazzler and Longshot's star symbols ever been addressed? I've been reading Excalibur th for the first time and have been loving it. Good taste. And in a couple flashback scenes, Alan Davis draws them essentially having the same symbol. I just assumed it was because they're in love and it's cute, but wondered if there's some Claremontian explanation lurking somewhere. In fact, there's even less explanation than you thought there might be in that there isn't one. It's actually pure coincidence. Dazzler's star symbol costume, uh, that's the blue one with a star on uh, sort of in the corner, that showed up in her own title in July of 1985, and Longshot didn't actually appear until December of that year with his outfit. So originally, the characters were completely unrelated, but both had similar star logos. I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, they both do shiny stuff, him with his eye, her with her powers. And I mean, it's also almost identical to the Kree star sigil on Captain Marvel's uniform. It's a symbol that pops up all over the Marvel universe, so I assume it's just sort of a general design zeitgeist. It's the latest fad. 
But, you know, honestly, I always loved them as a couple. I think their personalities jive really, really well. So um, I think that's a, a fun little coincidence, even if it wasn't anything at all deliberate. Meanwhile, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hi, I really love your show, and I was wondering if you had any advice on how to meet and make friends with other X-Men fans. I know it's a strange question, but I'm in high school and I don't have anyone to discuss the comics with, and I want to make some more friends. Any advice? Thanks. This is a really great question. It is not a weird question at all, because it can be so challenging to find your people, especially when you're in high school. I mean, the first solution, if what you're looking for is an in-person group, is basically to make the community you're looking for, to take, you know, friends and friendly acquaintances and say, this is a thing I really care about. I'd really like to be able to talk about it with more people. I'd love it if you'd be willing to read some of it with me. We talked about this, I think, a lot in the last episode, episode 48, about, you know, getting friends into comics and ways to do that without kind of dragging them in, kicking and screaming. Another thing you could do, if you have a friendly local comic shop, see if you can start a reading group or a fan group. Um, you might need to extend a little bit outside X-Men, start maybe something like a, a superhero book club, but if, if you're controlling the content, you'll be able to sort of slant it in terms of your own interest. Conventions are cool too. Again, volunteering at those is a really, really great way to meet local people your age or just with the same set of interests as you. And it also means that you can, you know, get into conventions for free and part of that and be more directly involved in those communities, which is a great way to make friends in them. You've also got the internet at your fingertips, which is a huge and fantastic resource. That's how I originally really found sort of my comics tribe um, on the Girl Wonder forums, which are still, I believe, active. Um, I haven't been involved in them in a really long time. That was a really great feminist comics forum. There's also Tumblr, Twitter. If you are kids these days and you know where kids these days talk about comics, weigh in in our comments and let us know. Speaking of comments, actually, something that I would recommend, it's a little self-deserving, is our own comic section because we have a really engaged, really rad community there. We moderate them fairly aggressively when we need to, which is actually almost never. A really sort of wide range of ages and folks who are, again, very plugged into and very into discussing the X-Men. So yeah, commenters, people who come to our forums, people who come to rachelandmiles.com, if you've got any advice for this listener for places where they can find a good and welcoming and not creepy comics community, please let us know. With that finished, speaking of our community, we have some members of that to thank. These are folks who help us make this podcast and all of the related stuff possible on Patreon. They get choices of, of thanks and silly voices. So let's hand it to, uh, I believe, Mojo. Spiral! What are these disgusting things? Who brought them here? They look so happy right now, I'm almost jealous. And the closer I get, the healthier they are. What are they called? Richard Chancellor and Alyssa? Those names are hideous. Take them away. Fry them. But do I own them? Of course I do. I love them. They're disgusting and perfect. And with that, a Claremontian angry narrator. Enjoy the calm while it lasts, Philip Lopez and Blake Jordan. For the price of your perfect day may be the universe itself. And with that, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps these days, and lots of other stuff. Like Rachel said, our podcast is totally listener-supported, and it's made possible by our Patreon supporters. Guys, you are rad. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Next week, we'll be following the X-Men from Asgard to Paris. For the trial of Magneto. While that is on the air, the two of us are physically going to be at Emerald City Comic Con. If you're going to be there, please come track us down. I've got a bunch of panels. Other than that, I'm going to be floating around, hanging out a lot at booth 310, I think. And Miles will be at the Dark Horse booth working all weekend. And we have a Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men listener meetup happening on Saturday. It's going to be at the convention center at 7 o'clock, so right after the show floor closes. And we will be posting details of that on rachelandmiles.com and on Tumblr in the next week. We really hope we'll see you there. 